Good afternoon, hello, and welcome everyone back to the Chalk Talk Football Podcast. It is preseason as we record this. It's about an hour and a half before all the preseason games start week one. Very excited about that. Very excited, as always, to talk football with our good friend Greg Cosell of NFL Films and ESPN's NFL Matchup. And Greg, I know you've been working on another uh, NFL Films Greatest Game series. We're doing the, Ch- the Jaws QB camp. But I know for a fact that you're going to stop and watch a whole load of preseason football. Well, you know, I actually am going to watch some tomorrow uh, based on tonight's games. I don't even know who's actually playing tonight but because uh, uh, I haven't looked, although I do know, I guess, that New England's playing uh, Green Bay. Yep. So, uh, But I'll, I'll watch some of tonight's games tomorrow. I, I won't watch every play of every game. That, that might be cruel and unusual punishment. Well, let me ask you, someone asked me this on the radio today, and you're so, you know, you're, you're so involved in, in player eval, uh, and and very astute with it. What do you watch in the preseason? What are you looking for? What what do you gain from watching preseason football? You know, in all honesty, not necessarily a ton. Um, I'm probably watching players, uh, individual players, and uh, and how uh, I believe they need to play to play in the NFL. You know, if they're rookies, let's say, trades, attributes. I'm not really that concerned with scheme. Um, you take note of scheme, like you'll take. I'll take note of route concepts. You know, because every team runs very much the same route concept so you'll see those things because teams do practice in games what they do they may not show wrinkles and variations but I'll give you a perfect example you know everybody talks about how teams are vanilla in the preseason, which is kind of one of the cliched phrases, but they're vanilla within what they do. Like when I was watching the first half of the Minnesota uh, Pittsburgh game on Sunday night, the Hall of Fame game, mm-hmm. I don't know, did you get to see any of that? Uh, first half. I'm actually, it's on the NFL Network right now, so I'm watching it as we speak. Well, there you go. I mean, so in the first half, Mike Zimmer's doing double-A gap blitzes. Now, that might not seem, you know, that might seem, oh, my God, he's, you know, he's emptying the playbook. But, no, because that's what Mike Zimmer does. So they have to practice it, you know. So I, I think teams are vanilla within what they do. So if you're a high-percentage blitz team, you blitz because that's what you do. So, uh, you know. I don't necessarily take note of all that in preseason, but uh, I'm looking at individual players far more than I am at schemes. Yeah. I always get, it always kind of cracks me up when coaches get pissed off at other coaches. I can't believe you blitzed in the preseason. When are you supposed to blitz? (laughs) You're, you're, You're getting your guys ready. I mean, if you're a rookie... You have to practice. You may have never done, you know, you played in, you know, this or that defense. You may have never done a double-A gap blitz, and you may have been drafted by the Titans who run it like 400% of the time. You kind of need to figure that out. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's why the vanilla stuff is it, – it, they're vanilla within what this specific team does. I guarantee Rex Ryan will practice blitzing in the preseason. Well, he's got a, he's got a new linebacker with a hell of a punch. <laughs> Sorry. Not bad. Not bad. Are you performing all week somewhere? I I will be. Try the veal. Okay. uh, Moving on from that. (laughs) Moving on from whatever that was. Let's continue with our division preview podcast. We've done the AFC and NFC East. We're going to head north to the AFC North. And we're going to start with a team that is certainly very interesting, the Baltimore Ravens. I did a a piece a couple weeks ago where I watched five plays – with Justin Forsett from Forsett's 2004 breakout season. He had a lot of interesting things to say about the way the Gary Kubiak offense was run and how it will change under Mark Trestman. And before we get into individual players, I mean, 
I think if you've watched football for a long time and you've seen, you know, the Broncos and the Texans and now the Broncos again, wherever Kubiak's been, the Ravens last year, you kind of have a feel for what he does. I think beyond the perception that he's a quarterback whisperer, so to speak, people don't really maybe have as quite, quite as much a handle on what Trustman does because he was with the Bears, he was with the Niners like years ago, he was in the CFL for a long time. What right. are some of the hallmarks of a Mark Trustman offense? And that's obviously going to be contingent on the personnel he has in Baltimore, but what are some of the staples of what he does? Well, I think his his background it probably stems from the West Coast methodology. And again, we know that that term is used an awful lot, but I think if you sort of give the Cliff Notes version, what you're looking at is a quick rhythm timing pass game in which the ball gets out and completions are the number one uh, criteria that you're looking for. That was always the key in that kind of offense. Quarterbacks with higher completion percentages and shorter throws if those throws were there. And and that's the way you stayed on schedule. Now, my guess is, given what was successful last year with Justin Forsett, and because of his size, he's a zone runner. He's not a gap scheme inside runner. Um, my guess is they'll stay with the zone run game as their featured uh, run game foundation. Uh, I think I wouldn't be surprised to see Joe Flacco, who obviously is a very good downfield thrower. I wouldn't be surprised, though, to see him completely more balls this year at a shorter uh, the shorter levels, maybe get a higher completion percentage, maybe get up in the low 60s, which I don't think he's uh, I, I don't know his stats offhand uh, I, he's probably done that but he hasn't been a, a 64% 65% guy, but I think that's more of a hallmark of a, of a Mark Tressman passing game. Right, and he has, Flacco has two new weapons, Brashad Perriman and Max Williams, uh, first and second round picks receiver and tight end uh, oh, Flacco actually completed 63% of his passes in 2009, 62.6 in 2010, and 62.1 last year. Oh, so be- better than me- memory served me. So that it wouldn't be a huge stretch. Um, no. it's, it's like when Mike McCoy said, I'll have Philip Rivers complete 70% of his passes, and he'd never done, you know, run, and he completed like 69. And he did. Yeah. I think he was 69.8 or something like yeah. that. So you can set your scheme for that for sure. Um, so... Brashad Perriman and Max Williams, we talked about both these guys. We did our pre-draft podcast, but give us the quick review of their individual talents and how they fit into what Baltimore will do. Well, I think Perriman is a receiver that if he reaches uh, his his skill set, you know, plays to his skill set in the NFL, then he's a complete receiver. He's 6'2", about 218. He looked big on film when I watched him in college. We know he runs well. Uh, he can go get it deep. He's He could catch those slants, the inside breaking throws. Uh, he could be, as I said, a very complete receiver. I thought Max Williams as a tight end, he was not used a whole lot of Minnesota as an inline blocker. He was more of their movement tight end, so he has a lot of experience doing that, uh, but he's certainly big enough to develop as a blocker. So he has the, the traits and attributes, again, that he might lead you to believe he could become a complete tight end. So uh, clearly with their first two picks, they addressed their, their passing game, and, and they felt they had to. Moving to that offensive line, we know that Marshall Yonda, if he's not the best guard in the football, he's certainly on a very short list. I, you know, to me, it's, yep. like, it's him and Josh Sitton who are like neck and neck. I think they have a really good all-line. They do. Uh, well, assembly at left guard, I think, really didn't get a lot of play because you talk about one guard if you talk about any, and everyone talks about Yonda. I thought assembly was great. 
Eugene Monroe Fiez, kind of a bounce back season. But the guy that I really like and wanted to get your opinion on was Ricky Wagner, the right tackle, who kind of came out of nowhere last year. Yeah, he's a Wisconsin kid. They're always tough. They're always physical. They're always well-schooled. You know, he's a grinder, uh, but he's a good grinder. And, and uh, you know, he's a solid right tackle. Now, the thing they also learned last year due to injury is they James Hurst, a free agent, came in and played yes. at tackle for Monroe and actually held his own. And then also John Urschel, the Penn State mathematician, came in, and uh, he actually played very well, too. So they've got some depth on their O-line as well as five solid starters. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's going to be, no matter what they do, passing or running, that's going to be the epicenter of their offense, which to me, that if you can have that as the epicenter of your offense, you're always in very good shape. And they even have a fullback who actually is a factor in their offense, yes. Kyle Juszczyk. Yes, absolutely. Um, moving to the defense, I want to start with Timmy Jernigan and Brandon Williams, who are kind of the guys you don't maybe know as much about. Uh, Brandon Williams, yeah. I mean... The, I, I, I like think, Brandon Williams a I lot. I think the reason... Now, Williams is not as dynamic as Haloti Nada and not as prime, because Nada in his prime was one of those like all-time dancing bears. But I think one of the reasons it was so easy for Baltimore to kind of jump ship with Nada in that trade was they saw what Williams could do. What, what are your thoughts about him? Yeah, I think he's... First of all, I think he's a really good combination of size and movement. I mean, for a man built like he is, I think he actually has pretty light feet. Uh, but he's, I agree with you. I think, uh, you know, look, Nada in his prime was great. Yeah. Uh, we're not putting Williams in that category, and he's a different kind of player. But I think Williams, if you play him in nose in, in a 3-4, which is essentially what they play, then I think he can be fine. And Jernigan, Jernigan is really athletic for his size, and he'll play more of a, of you know, a DN slash D tackle in their, in their 3-4. And I, it, you know, this is why you draft. I mean, this is what happens in the league. You know, people always get, you know, it's doom and gloom for a lot of fans of teams when they lose good players, but this is the way the league works, and this is why you draft. I mean, Williams was a third-round pick in 2013, if I recall, and I know Jernigan, I believe, was a second-round pick last year. This is why you draft, and, and I think, to be honest with you, I don't think there'll be much of a drop-off. These guys might ultimately be better, given where Nade is in his career now. Yeah. Uh, the the rate they excuse me the Bears gave Pernell McPhee a forty million dollar contract, which I, I didn't mind that deal at all because I think he could be Vic Fangio's Ahmad Brooks in Chicago, kind of that you know stay on the strong side. But McPhee may have been the best multi gap rotational pass rusher in the NFL last year. They lose him, but and Harbaugh has said this, Dean Pease has said this, and I can see it when I kind of compare him. They think that Zadarius Smith, the fourth-round guy from Kentucky, who I know you and I have discussed before, can come in and pretty much play that role. Yeah, he played D-end at Kentucky. Uh, you know, he sort of played opposite uh, Bud Dupree. Uh, I kind of like Smith on film. I wouldn't call him dynamic and explosive, but I think he can stand up. I think you can move him around. Uh, I think he has that kind of movement. So, yeah, I'd be very interested to see how they use him. And by the way, you know, we started with the D-line. They also drafted Carl Davis out of Iowa in the third round. And I, and I, I like him as well on film. Uh, so he's about six four, three twenty. I thought he had good movement. I think he's a guy that can work into the rotation. Obviously, he's not going to play sixty snaps as a rookie, but I think he can work into the rotation. I seem to remember, Mister Cosell. You and I were kind of at loggerheads about him, uh, and it. 
sometimes you see this and you turn out to be an idiot like I was with Kawan Short. He came in the NFL and he was really good. And I, I didn't question his effort, but I, I saw a lot of disappearances. And I know it's different with tackles, especially bigger tackles, but I think in, in and- it's a great, you know, it's an interesting point because Gawan Short, you know, the one thing I learned, and you're always learning when you do this, and I talked to some NFL people about this, is they always caution me about defensive tackles who weigh over 300 pounds that in college they play every snap and often they play 75 or 80 snaps because of the speed tempo offenses. And the and they told me that you have to be careful about that because we're not going to play those guys 70 or 80 snaps. Right. We're going to play those guys maybe 25 or 30 snaps. And then all of a sudden, the kinds of things you're talking about, if a guy has talent, they go away because they're, they're only playing 25 or 30 snaps. It's not a surprise, I guess, that the Ravens, you know, they've been pretty good with linebackers through their career, through their, through their tenure as a franchise since 96. Um and in C.J. Mosley and Daryl Smith, and I think Daryl Smith, I almost put him on the all-underrated team. I think he's just he's not a guy who's talked up enough. Uh, what do they give to that defense, and then how does Courtney Upshaw fit in? Well, Mosley and Smith are really, really good. I mean, I think Mosley was a guy who I really liked him coming out of Alabama, and he's he was all that and more last year for them. Smith is just one of those guys. He's he's one of those savvy veteran types. He can play him in any situation, and he's and he can perform. Um, you know, Upshaw is a guy that they they move around a little bit. I think he's sort of a he's a piece. You know, I think he's in some ways become this defense's version of Jared Johnson in many ways. Okay. You know, a, a solid player, not necessarily going to get twelve or fifteen sacks, but I think he's evolved over you know the last couple of years because he was drafted in two thousand twelve. He's evolved into a very solid, consistent piece of their defensive puzzle. I remember Jarrett Johnson as a guy who, no matter where you put him, he was going to hit his gap and do his job. And he wouldn't get, you know, 20 sacks a year, but he was always going to be where he was supposed to be. And I think Upshaw is that kind of physical talent. I mean, he's not a, an explosive, dynamic pass rusher, so he's not going to be that bend the edge, get a lot of sacks. Uh, but he is a good athlete, but he is big. So, you know, and Jarrett Johnson was big, too, uh, you know, for an outside linebacker in a 3-4. Not sure we have to say anything about uh, Suggs and Doomerville. People know how good they are, except I wish more people would talk about how good Suggs is against the run. Suggs is just a really good player, and, and you know he's been in the league a long time now. I mean, his, he came in, I believe, in 2003. I yep. think that's when it was. Yep. And... You know, think about that. Has he really had? You know, I know he had a he missed a year or so, you know, with an injury. You know, but he really has not had a bad season in the NFL. I mean, he's Terrell Suggs is a really good player. Let's see. He's had. He had. Well, 2007 he had five sacks. 2008 he had eight. Still made the Pro Bowl. 2009 he had 4.5. 2012 was the half season and the the two sacks, but 11 and 14 the year before that, years before that, 10 and 12, yeah. And usually, I mean, he's 32 now. So many of the so many edge rushers just fall off a cliff when they hit 30, and he doesn't appear to have lost a step. I think no, and I think you know again, you look at uh, you know. I mean, the last two years, and I pulled up the stats as well. As you know, he had 12 sacks last year and 10 the year before, and 14 in 2011 and 11 in two. So, you know, he's had his better sack seasons for the most part in the late, latter part of his career, which is rare. Um, Very rare. 
<laughs> so I think when we look at the Baltimore Ravens, at least when I look at the Baltimore Ravens, the one thing that concerns me, the one thing that I think could keep them, because, I mean, it's, you know, not breaking news here. Ozzie Newsom is pretty good at this whole personnel thing, uh, as is Eric DaCosta and all the guys in that front office. But that's secondary. I mean, they've thrown a lot of money and a lot of draft capital at it, and I, I still see it as a very unresolved secondary. Yeah, I mean, look, they signed Kendrick Lewis as a free safety uh, because they needed one. Um, Will Hill actually played very, very well for them last year. A really talented guy who's had a lot of off-the-field issues, but really talented. May have been their best secondary player last year. Jimmy Smith was coming on really well uh, until he got hurt, so he's back. Um, the, The other corner is a question mark right now. I mean, they signed Kyle Arrington just because they needed competition. But the other corner is clearly a question. Yep, definitely. But once again, we should see, barring any injuries, the Baltimore Ravens competing for a Super Bowl uh, title again. Certainly. Oh, they're a pretty solid team. Certainly. And not that we need to discuss them because I think his career speaks for itself. But Joe Flacco is pretty darn good. Joe Flacco is pretty darn good. What was, because yeah. he had, two years ago, he had that uh, really high interception season, and then he sort of flipped it back on. I know we didn't do podcasts that year. What was what happened that year, and what kind of knocked him back into shape? Well, I think Flacco's always a guy that's been willing to turn it loose. He's got that mentality, uh, and for the most part, he's been able to walk that line between you know turning it loose and making stick throws and not forcing balls. And every once in a while, you can step over that line. Now, my guess is, and, and I don't have his statistics up from the year he threw twenty-two picks. Uh, and I could be wrong, but my guess is he probably had a couple of games with, you know, three or four picks. And, you know, obviously when you do that, then all of a sudden in two games you got seven picks, and it just makes it seem really bad. So, uh, you know, that would be my guess without remembering the specific games. So, you know, but normally, you know, for a guy who is a drive thrower and pushes the ball down the field, he really does not throw a lot of interceptions. Yeah, 22 picks in 2013. He had a five-pick game against the Bills. He had... Two three pit games. There you go. So right there, that's eleven picks in three games. He had no picks in six games, and that you yeah, know, we think, oh my god, he threw twenty two picks. He must have been getting intercepted all the time. It, it really isn't that way. They tend to come in. No, no, that's why I said it. I mean, I, I didn't know the exact numbers, but uh, you know, I seem to recall that you know that he had a couple of games that were you know not very good, and uh, um, but yeah, it, he wasn't throwing you know two picks every week. Yeah. Uh, the Cincinnati Bengals, they have, well, to start with, their draft is interesting because they uh, they have two veteran tack, offensive tackles in their contract years, and Andrew Whitworth and Andre Smith, and they go out and get uh, Cedric Agui from Texas A&M and Jake Fisher from Oregon. I want to talk about that in a minute, and certainly want to talk about Whitworth. But obviously, I think when you talk about the Bengals, you start with Andrew Dalton, and I don't know how you view Dalton. I don't think we talked about him in a while, but, but to me... He kind of represents the worst kind of quarterback purgatory because he's good enough to where you don't really think about replacing him, but he keeps knocking his head on the ceiling. I mean, where do you – he's been in the league yeah, and, to where we kind of had a good, good idea of what he is and what he isn't and what he may never be. He, well, and I just, think – Sorry. Kind of reminds me of what is and what never should be, and you probably know what I'm talking about. I do. Led Zeppelin. There you go. Um, but, um, you know – 
they know that too, but here's the issue. And, and the fans, of course, get upset when quarterbacks sign big contracts and they go, oh, my God. But then you have to think about who's, who's going to play. And that's what happens with teams uh, when they have quarterbacks who are, you know, solid NFL quarterbacks. Because I think it's fair to say that's what Andy Dalton is. He's a solid NFL quarterback. As long as he stays with him when it is limits and then he turns into a train wreck when he doesn't, yeah, that's what he is. Yeah, I mean, you know, so he's your quarterback. So ultimately, we know that in this league, for much of a regular season in many games, you, you know, he doesn't have to be the driving force. And in fact, this offense will likely run through Jeremy Hill. And it, that's not surprising to me why they drafted um, uh, Bowie and Fisher, because I, what they see is they, that their offensive line has to be fortified. I'm sure they see Whitworth moving inside to guard to finish his career, which makes perfect sense. Um, so, you know, it, it, but the question becomes with Andy Dalton, when you get into those games, whether it's regular season or playoffs, where your quarterback has to make throws, uh, he's come up short in those games. And, you know, and he's somewhat limited as a passer. Uh, that's not going to change. He's all of a sudden not going to be different. So what you're hoping is you have enough team to carry him when you get into the games that mean more. And that he doesn't make the... the the, the brutal mistake. You don't need him to go 30 for 35 for 370 and four touchdowns, but you need him to be efficient within the context of your offense and not turn it over. See, and this is veering off into a philosophical discussion, which I know we like to do, and this is not just about Dalton, but we've seen these types of quarterbacks through NFL history, especially in the last, you know, post-merger as it's become more of a passing league. You get these guys who are tier two quarterbacks, but there's this fatal like flawed spring in their brain where they're convinced they can still make that throw. No, you can't. I can beat that guy on this throw. No, you can't. I can get the, I can get it over the safety's head and put the biscuit in the basket. Well, no, you're not that guy. And, you know, Hugh Jackson, who I have a great deal of respect for, don't get me wrong, but he's, you know, we're going to open it up. We, they keep, it's almost like they're encouraging him to put the foot on the gas and here comes the brick wall. And I think that's, that's the dichotomy I think some limited quarterbacks, they run into – it was like you know, Ryan Fitzpatrick, who everyone's talking about now, obviously, because he's a Jet starter, that year with Chan Gailey where he led the league in picks. I mean, it's like that old Ralph Wiley saying, a man's got to know his limitations, and if he doesn't, his coach should. I think the Bengals – and you can understand why they would want to because they signed into the big – which by, the, the deal's year to year, so that's – the numbers mean nothing. But – I think there's an interesting schism of understanding what Andy Dalton is and sort of promoting the idea that he can be more, and I think that's where the danger is. Well, my guess is they know that he can't be more. Uh, They're certainly not going to say that publicly, Doug, because why would they? But I thought that toward the end of last season, they pretty much put the ball in the hands of Jeremy Hill. Now, again, we can come back to that same philosophical argument that no matter how well you run the ball, you're still, your quarterback's still going to have to make throws, uh, which is true at some point in the NFL. Uh, but you still, you still have to play. I mean, it's, you know, uh, you still have a schedule and you got to play. So it, it, it Andy Dalton's not going to be any different. So now you're trying to play understanding what your quarterback is. And I guess what he isn't. 
Yep. I have a trivia question for you, Mr. Cosell, and given that we're leading into this, I'm sure you're going to get it pretty quickly. Which NFL running back led the league in rushing yards and yards per carry over the second half of the 2014 season? I guess it would be Jeremy Hill. I guess it would be. Ding, ding, ding. Wow. 929 rushing yards and six touchdowns, and that's after they said, you know what? He might be better than just putting him in a rotation with Giovanni Bernard. And this is, you know, 6'1", 235, tremendous power uh, to and through the hole. And the thing that, you know, it kind of, there's that Marshawn Lynch thing of, yeah, you're a power guy. But I think in the same, Jeremy Hill's got some, as you like to say, Mr. Cosell, Zuzu. He's a tremendous he's got pretty yeah, he's got pretty light feet for a big man. And I think they realized that Hill is, is the foundation of the offense with Gio Bernard being kind of a satellite player that they'll they'll get in 25 snaps a game and they'll figure it out. But I think they understand that this offense has to work through Jeremy Hill. And I think that's one reason they took a Bowie and Fisher with their first two picks because as they go forward, you know, Dolan is still a young quarterback. Hill's obviously only going into his second year. I think they see how they have to play offense. And it has to start with the O-line and the run game. Well, let's start with the O-line, uh, or let's get into that. And I want to start with Whitworth because he's been in the league a long time. He's played both tackle and guard very well. He gave up, I think, no sacks, one quarterback hit, and eight hurries all season per pro football focus. And you watch him on tape, and from a purely athletic standpoint, there's no reason he should be able to do any of the things he does. The thing that just blows me away about Whitworth and it's, you know, a guy who has gained all this intelligence and really learned from what he's done. I don't know that anyone is better at creating leverage with his body and understanding angles. If there are five tackles in the NFL who are better than that, and it's such a leverage game where he plays, if there are five guys better than that, it would surprise me. He's just, he's a technician. Well, funny you mention that because one of the things I've, I've learned in my years studying college players coming into the NFL, and O-linemen in particular, is it's not always about athleticism. Do you love when a guy, particularly a tackle, has really light feet and is a dancing bear? Sure you do, you know, because there's not many of those guys. But one thing I've learned is it's more about technique, hand placement, angles, leverage, and competitiveness. Yep. And Whitworth fits that, that latter category really, really well. And he's been a really good pro. He's not what anyone would say is the prototype left tackle, but he's played left tackle very well. And I think they see him, given that he's going into, I think, his 10th year in the league, um, as a guy who can move inside because of his size, he's a big man. He can move inside to guard, and at, you know it may not be this year, but Fisher and Abui will are guys who look like they can play tackle. Certainly Abui, and then if Andre Smith leaves, then they've got their their tackles of the future, and they move Woodworth inside to guard. Yeah, I think so. I know that we we, we were having the great David DeCastro, Kevin Zeitler discussion a couple of years back. You were in the Zeitler camp, and I'm still on Team DeCastro, watching him right now in the Hall of Fame game. He's a stud. Well, oh, DeCastro's a good player. I mean, it's not like he's turned out to be a bust. Oh, I know. Um, yeah. Your thoughts on Zeitler now that he's been in the league? Has he, because I know you just you loved his, his nasty, uh, his... 
you know, I, I knew you liked a lot about him. As I thought he moved well. Yeah. I think he's a good, solid guard. I mean, I don't think he's, you know, a top two or three guard, but I think he's a really good, solid guard. You know, let's put it this way. I don't think you're looking to replace him. Right. We know that A.J. Green is an outstanding receiver. Duh. So we'll move on from that. What are... When it comes to, I mean, there, you know, Eifert has had injury issues. Uh, yeah, but he's the guy I would focus on here yeah. because I think he's really talented. I think he's a multi-dimensional player. He's still unproven because he basically missed all of last season. Uh, but I think he's got the talent to to develop into uh, the legitimate second option because I don't really think, as of now, they have that true legitimate second option in the pass game. Yeah. Well, Mohamed Sanu's a better deep ball throw than Andy Dalton. That's about all I know about him. Um, <laughs> now, now, don't, don't, don't be me. Uh, one guy I know that you were really high on a few years back was Denarius Moore when he was in Oakland, and he he kind of fell off. That was that just a product of being in Oakland. He's in, you know, it, does he still have, based on what you've seen, an ability to help this passing game? Well. You know, I think he's a, he's a speed guy. I, it looked like he was coming on when Carson Palmer was in Oakland, and Palmer left. It was, you know, in between Palmer and Carr. And I think that, that Moore sort of kind of fell off the face of the earth a little bit. Um, I don't know exactly where he'd be at at this point in his career. If he's the same guy he was in Oakland, then I, then I think he's got a place in the NFL uh, because he could run. Uh, he was really quick. You know, I mean, I'm not – going to sit here and tell you he was you know he's a great receiver but he could really run and it every team likes that dimension in their offense a guy who can run the cincinnati bengals defense as a team had 20 sacks last year they had fewer sacks as a team than justin houston had as an individual now geno atkins being hurt that that killed him but Damata Pecco has, you know, he's getting older. That's that's kind of an issue. Michael Johnson comes back after a year in Tampa Bay, and I'm not quite sure what he is. I, I you know, Atkins is obviously a plus plus guy. I like Carlos Dunlap a lot. Let's start with him. What do you think of Dunlap? Yeah, Dunlap is maybe as athletically gifted as any defensive end in the league, but unfortunately doesn't really play like that all the time. Mm-hmm. And he's a guy that you watch him when he makes his good plays and you think he should get 15 to 18 sacks a year and he ends up with eight. Right. Uh, but he's so athletically gifted. Geno killed him last year because he wasn't Geno. Yeah. Um, you know, they couldn't rush the quarterback. The numbers clearly bear it out. Uh, so, you know, if, if Atkins can come back to being what he was before the injury, obviously that really enhances their pass rush. Uh, I'm sure they're still waiting for Dunlap because I believe they re-signed him at some point. So they're probably still waiting for Dunlap to see if he can have that breakout season. Um but other than that, they have to manufacture pressure. And you don't want to be in that situation all the time. You have to manufacture pressure to generate any. And I thought Paul Gunther did a really good job so with, did I. with the linebackers in coverage and the secondary in his first year as um, that defensive coordinator. Replacing Mike Zimmer is no easy task. You also have to remember that they lost Vontez Burfecht. And, and let's put aside the college stuff because I've talked to people on the staff and they say Burfecht that he runs the defense, yep. that he makes all the calls, he makes all the changes, that he's incredibly smart. So they lost him and, and they had a change, uh, not only personnel, obviously, but that they couldn't do a lot of the things they wanted to do tactically because he wasn't on the field. 
Well, the projected three, Emmanuel Lamore, who I like, I think is coming on as a player. You got Malaluga, and then you got Burfecht. I mean, if they're if they're together, that's a pretty decent core. I, t- They've got a lot of depth too. If they need, you know, because they have uh, Vincent Ray, who Vincent was a starter Ray. last year. Really they, good. They he's signed- a really good third down guy. Yeah, they signed A.J. Hawk, who's clearly at the end, but, I mean, just as a depth guy. Um, so, you know, they've got a lot of depth at the linebacker position, where they struggled last year due to injury. Yeah. The secondary, you got Drake Kirkpatrick as this one starting corner, and then Darquise Denard will be coming in. And one of those guys will eventually replace Leon Hall, who's still playing well. Reggie Nelson, uh, still a good player. they got a lot of number one picks in their secondary. But you I'll know? tell you the guy who just, and I think the stats were a little bit better than the tape, but George Iloka, when he came out of college, I thought, I, I wondered if he was another Taylor Mays, where just, boy, he just flashes athleticism, but I'm not sure he gets it football-wise. Well, last year he got it football-wise. He, and safety passer rating against is always tough because of the schemes, but he was targeted, I think, 30 times and allowed an opponent passer rating of 18.4, number one among all safeties. Really good uh, downhill run guy. Um, he get, he did give up that uh, forty-five yard uh, reception to Hakeem Nicks of all people in the playoff game against the Colts. But this is a guy I really like. Yeah, I think he's a good player. I mean, I don't think he's a dominant safety. I think he's a good player. I think he's he's got a lot of dimensions to him. I think he's he's solid. G. Nelson has in Cincinnati has become a really good player because they use him in a lot of ways. Um, but they've got. They've, their corners, their top four corners are all number one picks. Reggie Nelson was a number one pick, too. Not of them, but he was a number one pick. So they've got a lot of talent in their secondary. Uh, you know, this would be the year I would imagine they would expect a Narn, who was uh, a top 15 pick, if I, if memory serves me, um, you know, to, to in theory step up and then win a starting job. And then Adam Jones is your nickel guy. That's a, that's a pretty solid secondary right there. I, and Adam Jones is a very good nickel player. Yep. I mean, unfortunately, people think of him in other ways, but he's become a really good nickel player. He's it's you know the the story is more common that when a guy gets in trouble, he stays there. There are those rare Chris Carters, and he's one of them. Who's he, right? He's kept his nose clean. He's become yeah, really good guy for his role, which is uh, always good to see. So. In, in, in a nutshell, in summary, given what you said, do the Bengals have the team around Andy Dalton in your mind? They definitely have the team to be competitive and I think compete you know, for a division. But, uh, you know, I, it's, that's a tough call. This is a tough division. I mean, I think Andy Dalton is going to have to play significantly better than he played last year. Yep. When I, well, I did not think last year was a very good year for him overall. Well, I mean, people, because I, I mean, I sort of make a joke about it. Why are you so down on Dalton's? Like, look at his third down numbers. Look at his numbers under pressure. Look at his numbers. Every single crucible moment, quarterbacks face to go from the second tier to the first. The guys who we regard as future Hall of Famers. The guys who get it done. Those situations, you look at every single one of them, he's below average. Yeah, and that's that. You started this conversation, this team discussion, with that philosophical question, and you know that's a question that teams really, I'm sure, battle with. Uh, you, you know, to sign guys like Dalton because 
you know, they know what he is. He's played four years. He's not likely to be a whole lot different going forward. You know, are some years better than others? Sure they are. But he's not likely to be an, an altogether different player. So it, it raises that question, but you get stuck because you still have to line up with a guy who's a professional quarterback, and if you don't sign him, then you're then you're back with nobody at quarterback, and, and that's even worse. Yeah. Uh, well, the Bengals spent most of the '90s there, so I can understand their reticence to, <laughs> to, 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 you know, stick with the sure thing as unspectacular as the sure thing may be. So the Cleveland Browns. Speaking of quarterbacks, who boy, uh, we give we had a first round pick on Brandon Whedon. Oh, let's go back and do a first round pick on Johnny Manziel. And, and by the way, Johnny Manziel, in my opinion, will play this year. I, do you think Josh McCown's going to start 16 games? No. No, they gave him a three-year, what, eleven million dollar deal. That's you know, that's a placeholder. That's that's the Kevin Kolb third contract contract. He's he's the guy. I mean, we're talking about journeyman. He, if you look up journeyman in the dictionary, that's he because he you know he's been in the league for a long time. He's had years where he didn't throw a pass. He had that wonderful half season for the Bears after Cutler got hurt, which will extend his career by five years and probably give him. 50 <laughs> he'll get fifty million more dollars over the course of his lifetime over that. And he'll play till he's forty three. Which you can do when you throw twenty five passes a year. You know, he really struggled in Tampa last year. He yeah, wasn't he very good. Well, you know, uh, when you have no offensive line and you can't move, that's a problem. But okay, let, I mean, we know what McCown is. Blah blah blah. The receivers. You know, that's that's. It. So let's talk about Manziel. What what I saw last year. I mean, I read Bruce Feldman's outstanding book about his develop about Manziel's development. I don't know if you did, but it was really really. Boring. You mean the quarterback? Yeah. I read it, yes. Yeah. Um, and I saw a lot of those things because you know how it is when you see it. There are quarterbacks who come into the league, work their asses off, and they're still overwhelmed by the NFL. Not to this degree. Manziel looked like he didn't know what the hell he was doing. He looked like he was literally playing on a freeway. Well, he didn't know what he was doing. And, that, and, and again, that that didn't so let's put aside the off the field stuff okay that didn't surprise me because why would he know what he was doing based on how he played in college and the scheme in which he played it so th- that was not a surprise at all obviously because he didn't work and he had other issues he didn't get to the point where he studied and, and you felt good about him with with a good learning curve um now we'll see where he goes uh the one thing i hope that they, they don't do is fall into the trap of thinking, oh, he can run around and make plays, so let's encourage him to do that. That will not make him a good NFL quarterback. <laughs> That'll make him an NFL quarterback for about one more year, and then he'll go work for the SEC Network. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I know you were joking to some degree, but we're, we're not joking. I mean, at some point in this league, you know, the most overlooked thing, for instance, about a guy like Russell Wilson is how well he throws the ball. Yeah. And that sounds crazy to say about a quarterback, but, you know, at some point you got to throw the ball. And well, he's going to have to learn some of the details and nuances of throwing the ball from the pocket at the NFL level. And I'm not saying it can never happen. Uh, I would say right now I, I question that to a significant degree, but I've done this too long to say it can never happen. But there's a significant learning curve there. And if they encourage him to run around and be Johnny, it won't happen. Well, because I, being up here, I went through the different sort of iterations of Russell Wilson as time went on. And, you know, now he learns to do this, now he learns, and the little subtleties. 
in a larger sense with quarterbacks who are plus athletes and are mobile, I tend to look for different things. You know, can he throw the ball with touch, arc, and timing, or is everything a straight line? I mean, I remember watching Seneca Wallace, and everything was a bullet, which when you want to get it over the safety's head is not good because you hit the safety in the back of the head, and that's, you know, he's intercepted the ball. Yeah, but, but the point about Wilson, and you know him and, you know, better than I do because you're out there, but he's, he intuitively understands what it takes. He wants to be Drew Brees, yes. and, and he's made no bones about that. Now, will he ever be exactly Drew Brees? We don't know that, but, you know, I, I think he understands intuitively what it takes to be a great NFL quarterback. Right. Now, are there always going to be times where maybe he can't see some things? Sure. I mean, he is under 5'11". But I don't think he thinks about the position as, I'm going to go out and run around. No, he thinks, I need to make a perfect 35-yard bang throw in the NFC Championship game, and I need to do it again to go to the Super Bowl. Right. And I can do that because I've practiced those throws a thousand times. I don't see, and I'm not, you know, I don't know Johnny Manziel. I don't know how much of this is overblown. All I can go by is what I see on tape, and it's kind of like with E.J. Manuel. I'm not questioning E.J. Manuel's work habits. I don't know E.J. Manuel. I met him once at the Senior Bowl. But I know what I see, and what I see is a guy who is just, I mean, you say he's going to play this year. I, I don't know how that's feasible. Right. Well, no, I think he'll play because I don't think McCown is going to play 16 games either due to injury or whatever the reason. But don't forget, this is, and again, then we can move on because yeah. we, we've talked Manziel ad nauseum, you know, for the last year. But they did trade up to draft him in the first round. So at some point, he's going to have, they're going to have to find out if Johnny Manziel is their quarterback. It's easy right now to toss him aside. Like I said, I'm not going to do that. Now, people who've heard me talk about Manziel, the skill set, I think think it's at this point questionable a questionable nfl skill set yeah but i'm not going to say that can never happen speaking of questionable nfl skill sets greg the browns receiver core yeah we don't need to spend a lot of time on that i mean you know look they they have um Dwayne Bow, they have Brian Hartline, who are sort of retreads, you know, now in the league. I think Andrew Hawkins is actually a really good slot receiver. Yeah. They got some some good snaps last year out of Taylor Gabriel, but he's small. So you know, I think that right now, you know, this is this is a wait and see receiving core that you probably feel is below average by NFL standards. Uh, they did have a couple of lesser-known backs who did pretty well, and that we'll, we'll get to the offensive line in a second because that's the real... That's the strength of the offense, which is a good start. But I'll tell you this. The guy they got in the third round, Duke Johnson from Miami, yep. boy, do I like him behind this line. That kid can motor. I agree. And I, I know for a fact that their running back coach, Wilbur Montgomery, loved Duke Johnson and was thrilled to get him. And, and I think he's going to end up playing meaningful snaps. And I think his receiving ability will be critical to this offense, which is why I think he'll play a lot of snaps. So we know about Joe Thomas. We know about Alex Mack. Um, Mitchell Schwartz, I think, is sort of the, the is, has been the weak spot. Um John See, I think their guards are pretty good. Betonio, who played left tackle in college, and Nevada played, really had a good rookie season, a left guard. And John Greco is one of those sort of, you know, he's, he kind of reminds me in some ways, not that he's the exact same player, but just the way he plays with the toughness of a guy like Alex Boone. Kind of. 
But you know, like a like a tough, hard nosed, battles every week kind of guy. You know, he went to the University of Toledo, not a big school guy. I mean, but I think he's a solid NFL guard. Um, the guy I want to talk about though is Batonio because well, I don't want to talk about him. Okay, fine. <laughs> Why not? He's got some, you know, they really like him because he's the guy that's got some nasty to him. Yeah. Now, say what you want about Joe Thomas, and we know that Joe Thomas has the kind of feet you don't see in a lot of tackles. You know, he's one of those guys. But Thomas is not a naturally nasty player. Right. And they love Betonio, and that's why they drafted him, because they knew when Petten came in that he, you know, his belief in the run game as, as more of a foundation. They wanted some nasty on their own line, and Betonio was that guy. They most definitely got it. You know what else they got, Greg, is they got some nasty on their D-line with the first-round pick of Danny Shelton, who I know we talked. I'm, I'm, I was all in. I thought he had snap-to-snap snap, probably the most consistent tape of any player I watched last year. Um, and given his size, play, he played 80 snaps a game. He didn't come off the field against all those speed-tempo offenses in the Pac-12. And you're watching him in the fourth quarter against Oregon, and he gets a little gassed, but he's still in there, and he's still, yep. he's still battling. So... In that is Mike. Is that Mike? I know Mike Patton runs kind of the Ryan hybrid. Is that a one gap or a two gap, or do they mix it? It's a mix. It's you know, it, there's a lot of blitz involved. There's a lot of different schemes. They do. They're very, very multiple. No surprise there. No. Um, they pick up Randy Starks. Phil Taylor should be back. Carlos Dansby. Uh, They've got some good depth on the D line. I mean, all these guys, even guys like John Hughes, have started. Amante Bryant, you know, Desmond Bryant. These are guys who've all started in the NFL. And Paul Kruger, who I thought they kind of overpaid as a, you know, he, I, I figured him to be sort of a product of that Baltimore system. And I was wrong. He said he had really good numbers last year. The one guy I wanted to mention, and this is for those listening. Um, yes, the Browns' defense is worth watching. I know we, you know, everyone makes some of their offense. Their defense is, is coming into something else. And the guy who's penciled in, second-year kid, right inside linebacker Christian Kirksey, Greg, I put him on my all-underrated team, and the tape I've watched, I, I just was really impressed by his ability to, to hit gaps, to stop the run. But really, his not only his speed – over half a field uh, horizontally, but the ability to be aware of where he is. Yeah, and I think the reason he'll end up starting is and he'll replace Craig Robinson, who started for the last number of years, is because Kirksey's going to be a better pass defender. Robertson always had a tougher time in pass coverage. He's not that kind of linebacker. Kirksey is athletic. I mean, Kirksey, I believe, is only he came in the league at about two thirty. I don't know, you know, if he's up to more being in an NFL weight room now, but he's an athletic kid. He can play in space and he can run. Yeah, I think it's. Um... Yeah, he's he's definitely one to watch. And the secondary, I mean, Joe Hayden, we know who he is. Tashawn Gibson, as long as he stays healthy, he was on a Pro Bowl turn. Dante, Dante Whitner's pretty good. Tremont Williams, who two or three years ago, most people would rate as one of the top five to seven corners in the league, really fell off the last couple of seasons. In your mind, is that a function of age or less talent around him? Because that Green Bay defense... Yeah, I mean, look, I think he wasn't as good, but I think they probably signed him with the goal, because I've met Tremont Williams, and he's an unbelievable guy. And I think they probably signed him with the hope that he can teach a guy like Justin Gilbert how to be a pro, and also help Pierre Desir, who's actually a really interesting prospect who they like. Yeah, I like him a lot. 
you know, he may end up, uh, you know, becoming a starter over Justin Gilbert if Gilbert doesn't, you know, turn out to understand what it means to play in the league. But I think that they probably <laughs> signed Williams to help in that regard. Uh, you know, and, and it's very interesting because um, Mike Pettin has never had a problem with short defenders in the slot. Right. If you go back to his Jet days and then his year in Buffalo with Nikel Roby. And I thought this kid, Kawan Williams, he played an awful lot for them in the slot last year, and I thought he played well. Again, leaving out the off-field stuff and whatever was going on in the locker room, um, the problems Gilbert had on the field, how did they manifest themselves? Why did, that, why did it not work on the field? Well, again, that's it's hard to say why because you know corner contrary to what you know a lot of people might believe, yeah, because it looks like just an athletic position, but there's so much technique. You know, you've been to training camps, you just hear defensive backfield coaches harp on technique, 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 technique. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Bill Davis, the D coordinator here in Philadelphia, and all they talk all talks about is technique and how we have to teach technique better. You know, my guess is just. Justin Gilbert was nowhere even close to playing with the necessary technique. And when you get to the NFL, technique wins at so many positions. It's the small details. Yep. Well, being, I mean, I get the chance to talk to a couple of pretty intelligent defensive backs up here in Seattle. Chris Richard, their new defensive coordinator, really good mind on it. Pete Carroll knows a few things about secondaries, too. So certainly it's, uh, it's been proven up here. They've brought guys in who were lanky and athletic and blah, blah, this, and, oh, he'll fit the Legion of Boom because he's 6'3 and, you know, long arms and he can hit people at the line. Not If you don't understand, it's like, uh, how does Richard put it? Know your fits and time your hits, and if you don't do either one of those things, you'll be doing it somewhere else. And the thing is, when you're playing off coverage, let's say you're playing zone, then then there's all kinds of mental elements to that too about understanding route concepts, pattern reading, uh, you know, understanding uh, when you move and when you don't move. You know, it's it's there's so many things that go into it that's just it's not just take hey, go out and cover a guy and. You know, I don't. I can't. I don't know Justin Gilbert. I'm not at their training camp. You know, so I don't know what he doesn't know. But clearly, he didn't know last year. Before we move to the Steelers, uh, talking about secondary and what you need with the the prevalent the new prevalence of option routes. Um, certainly, the Patriots run a ton of them. Other teams are really getting involved. It, it seems like maybe over the last ten years or so. I mean, you know, option routes were really big in the the run and shoot days too. But it's it's more become a staple for more teams. It seems like cornerbacks have to become mind readers or card counters or you're looking for tips. How do you think option routes have affected how cornerbacks play? Well, I think what it's affected overall is concepts of coverage because I think what a lot of teams do is now they do a little more of sort of pattern matching as opposed to you know just playing true man or true zone so there's there's elements of both man and zone so because a lot of teams now with bunch concepts a lot of teams with stack releases things like that you know option you're talking option routes is teams will try to let routes define themselves and then have their secondary people react as opposed to trying to react too early in the down and then you can get caught with all these you know bunch concepts mesh concepts stack releases so i think it's just changed conceptually a little bit how secondaries play yeah on the same route it's like zone to here and then man through the rest of it or whatnot 
And if you want to read more about pattern matching and pattern reading, Nick Saban has some good stuff on it. It's a fascinating concept to me because it's a, it's a new dimension of evolution. In, in well, it's just another step forward in, in, in matching up to offenses that, that line up with more multiple receivers than they did you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So now defenses have to defend that, obviously. So how do you go about doing it? So, Greg, if I told you that one team, this is Football Outsiders Opponent Adjusted Metrics, uh, DVOA, which is their per-play metric, if I told you that one team ranked second in DVOA in offense and 30th in DVOA on defense, would the last team you guess be the Pittsburgh Steelers? No, they wouldn't be the last team I'd guess, but I knew it was Pittsburgh because it's the only team we haven't talked about yet. Yeah. Um... Good segue, though. Yeah, in a nutshell, uh, what the hell? What, what's up with Well, the see, I think that, to me, the overriding thing about Pittsburgh this year is they're going to change the way they play on defense. And, and obviously, Dick LeBeau is not there anymore. And, and I don't think they're changing because Mike Tomlin is now theoretically more in charge, so he wants to play a certain way. I think they're changing because of the way they see their team profile. Yeah. I think they believe offensively they can be dynamic and, and, and score a lot of points on a pretty consistent basis. Yeah. Um, you know, get up in the 20s pretty much every week and have games where they get into the 30s. Um, and, and certainly, you know, we don't need to probably go through every guy on offense. No. I mean, this is, this is an offense most people know. And, you know, it's a veteran offense with uh, some young pieces that are really strong. But I think they see their defense now. I almost look at this like the Indianapolis Colts under Tony Dutch, Payton's prime, you know, like from 2004 to 2007 or eight. you know, around that time uh, where their offense was going to score a lot and their defense was going to play more cover two and force the opponent to go 10, 12, 13 plays to score. I think you're going to see a lot more of that philosophy with Pittsburgh's defense this year. And I've always thought it was, you know, people automatically assume if you're playing cover two or especially Tampa two, oh, it has to be a 4-3. Teams play cover two all the time in in 3-4 and hybrid and, you know, occasionally they'll drop a linebacker back. I don't know that it's Tampa, but how often, I mean, are 3-4 are hybrid teams generally predetermined to be more aggressive in the secondary because they have more and different guys up front? I know that's a generalization, but how, how does well, that generally work? One of the things that's evolved over time is teams – you know, that, that, look, the Steelers were a zone blitz type team under Dick LeBeau. And when it all first began for years and years, the predominant coverage behind that was cover three. So you'd have three underneath defenders and three deep defenders. And then teams started to experiment with other coverages behind zone blitzes. So it wasn't just cover three. It became any number of things. So I think I think the Steelers, like every team in the league, when the Steelers went to their sub package, they pretty much had four guys uh, who were on the line of scrimmage. Now, Sometimes they were creative and, and, you know, maybe only two guys had their hand on the ground or one guy had his hand on the ground. That becomes relevant. If there's four guys who are basically on the line of scrimmage, they're going to be accounted for by the offensive line. So 
uh, I think that the Steelers will, you know, a guy like, let's say Jarvis Jones finally, you know, develops and becomes a good pass rusher. It really doesn't matter in a sub-package, Doug, whether he's in a three-point stance or a two-point stance, if he's lined up outside. You know, it's like the, the Leo position in Seattle, which everybody likes to talk about because it makes them sound smart. I mean, really, that guy's he's just a glorified defensive end. You know, I mean, you can say what you want about it. You know, the year they switched and put Red Bryan at strong side D end and at 320 pounds, and Chris Clemens had the good year opposite, and he was the Leo. He was the weak side defensive end. Sometimes he put his hand on the ground. Sometimes he stood up. Actually, if you want to sound smart, you call it the elephant because you're trying to make other people who call it the Leo sound stupid. Well, there you go. There it is. You go to the elephant like the, the Niners in the old days, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Fred Dean and Charles Kelly. Boom. Those guys are pretty good. Uh, so this offense, I want to talk about it in general. I mean, the defense, you got a couple of guys. Clearly a defense in transition. We don't know what we're going to see there, so I want to move on to the offense. Um, Todd Haley was much maligned his first sort of span in, in Pittsburgh. Ben Roethlisberger had become a great quarterback for a lot of reasons. I saw things that I'd never seen before from Roethlisberger as far as, as touch and timing. He's still able to run. He's still able to throw those 40-yard passes across his body with four guys hanging. He's still got, got all the physical attributes. In your mind's eye, when you're watching Roethlisberger tape from last year, what advanced what different dimensions did he come up with? Because it, it was a different guy, wasn't it? Well, I thought he was much better and more consistent from the pocket. Yeah. Not that he was terrible from the pocket before, obviously not. But I thought that he was much better staying there and throwing the ball from the pocket. And, uh, again, I didn't chart the number of times he made throws outside the pocket. He still did that extremely well, and he'll always do that until he just can't move anymore. But I thought that he seemed much more efficient, much more composed from the pocket. Yep. Uh, obviously, Antonio Brown is his main guy. Let's talk about, you know, Martavis Bryant. They've got Sammy Coates now. Another, you know, it's like, gosh, another speed guy. And that receiver core, is, that could be something else. Yeah, we know what Brown is. There's no route runner in the NFL who's quicker out of a break than Antonio Brown. Yeah. Um, Martavis Bryant, he, he, there's no reason to believe he won't continue to get better. He, you know, obviously he's going to have to get better at, at uh, being more complete with his tree. I mean, he can run a 6'4", 2'10". He can run past corners. He's a vertical guy. He's a straight line guy. He'll have to become a little more complete. I always liked Marcus Wheaton. I'm hearing he's having a good training camp. Uh, so... You know, he's another guy. I mean, he played in a pro-style offense in college at Oregon State from Mike Riley. So, you know, I, I would expect him to continue to improve. Sammy Coates is, is a rookie. I would bet he'll struggle a bit Yeah, because he wasn't asked to do a lot in college. So I think it's going to take him some time. Yeah, he's a fast kid who's more muscular than a lot of yeah. fast kids are, but I would agree with that. Um, it, it's going to take him some time. And then you have Le'Veon Bell, who to me has the best combination of patience and burst in the NFL. He'll wait and wait and wait, and then boom! It's like the hype. yeah. He's he's right now. Could you could argue he's the most complete back in the NFL because of his receiving ability. They line him up as a split receiver at times, and yeah. he can make catches. Well, put it this way: uh, when we did our positional rankings at SI about a month ago, I did quarterbacks, running backs, and receivers, and Pittsburgh had the second guy, the second guy, and the second guy. Not bad. 
Um, that offensive line, I mean, I remember in, especially when they won Super Bowl forty three, and I know you you did that greatest games, that was an absolute liability. I think they kind of broke even with the line when they went to the Super Bowl in 2010. It has over time, and people will not Kevin Colbert, their GM, for certain things. I think the way he's put the defense together is problematic. But, you know, he's, he's gone back to the well and tried to make this line better, and I really think he has. When people talk about the Steelers' offense, I think this is – this starting five – Gets kind of. I'm not saying they're you know the 1976 Raiders or anything. But no, but I think they sort of gelled a bit last year. I mean, I toward the end of the season. You know, again, you know, it just goes to show you. And we, you know, when we do our, our tape study for the draft, you know, we we have our draft conversations, Doug. You know, we're all everybody's always looking for the ideal. You know, here here's if you had to put put down the prototype. You know, let's say at left tackle. Well, Kelvin Beecham is by no means the prototype. I mean, he's probably about 6'3", which, you know, nowadays would be considered way too short to play a left tackle. Yeah, you're a guard but, at that point. What's that? You're a guard at that point. Maybe a second. Yeah, but he, I thought he actually acquitted himself perfectly well last season. You know, and I think Ben being better in the pocket helped all this. You know, Marcus Gilbert, he's been around now for four or five years. Uh, you wouldn't say he's a great right tackle, but I think he, he does the job. You know, they have DeCastro, Foster, Pouncey. I mean, I think this is a very solid professional O-line. Are we still in an era where you can have a defense this questionable and an offense this dynamic and win the Super Bowl? You know, as a philosophical question, I mean, every year is different and every team is different. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a hard question to answer. You know, certainly, you know, you look at – the teams that have won recent Super Bowls, I mean, New England's defense ended up being very, very good last year. Obviously, Seattle the year before was somewhat historic. Um, I'm trying to remember, you know, the more recent Super Bowl winners. Yeah. You know, the Giants beat the Patriots twice because their defense played exceptionally well. Um I mean, I wouldn't expect the Steelers' defense to be high in the rankings this year, but I think if certain players perform the way the Steelers might like to think they could perform. Um, you know, they they could be better as the season progresses. Now, you know, Jarvis Jones was a first-round pick. He's going into his third year. Can he become a pass rusher? Clearly, the secondary is the biggest concern. You know, we don't need to go through every player, right. but the secondary is the biggest concern. Because as we sit here right now, you have William Gay and Cortez Allen listed as their starters. Now, We'll see how camp plays out. I'm not sure they really have anybody else who's going to start unless Brandon Boykin, they feel he can line up on the outside. I think, you know, the Golson kid, they're talking about, you know, putting him on IR and ending his season, and he's 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, anyway, you know, I didn't. did they see him as an outside corner? Now, if you play cover two a lot, he could be an outside corner because you're not going to match up man-to-man a lot. Yeah. Well, to me, the only sure thing, and I like Boykin a lot, I'm not sure about him as an outside guy. I think you, you put him in the slot where he belongs. You, you know, you give him 700 snaps, and you're in good shape. The only guy right now, in my opinion, who's a sure thing uh, is Lawrence Timmons. That's the only guy where I go, yep, plug that in, and there you go. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, look, they really like Stephen Tuitt, who was a second round pick, who's very gifted athletically and has got length to him. Um, 
you know, Ryan Shazier was a high first-round pick who's got obviously tremendous athletic ability. They're counting on him to be an impact player this year next to Timmons. So there's, you know, Jones, as I said, was a first-round pick. They've got, you know, they just signed Cameron Haywood, who's a very good player. Not a pure pass rusher, but a very good player. So, you know, they do have guys who, if they perform the way they're supposed to, then their defense is not bad per se, but it's the secondary that's a concern. I mean, and then they're going to have to try to hide that a little bit and I think that's their feeling with how they're going to change their defensive approach a little bit. You know, Shamarco Thomas is going to replace Palomalo. I remember watching him coming out of Syracuse. He, he reminded me in some ways of a Bob Sanders type player yeah. and I'm sure they're hoping he can become that kind of player within their scheme. Yep. Two rookies I'm intrigued by, uh, Bud Dupree, and I want to talk about, oh, he ran really fast at the combine. He got all these sacks. When I watched him in coverage, covering slot and flex guys, that's what, like, whoa, wait a minute. He can actually do that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's why I almost saw him when I watched him because of the way he was used. As almost like a Jamie Collins. He's yes. really athletic, yes. Bud Dupree. Very much now, so. I also thought that if they said, hey, you're, you're a pass rusher now, go get the quarterback, I think he's got the skill set and the athleticism to develop into that guy. Yep. And then uh, <laughs> a guy we talked about <laughs> in both positive and negative terms, we were talking about safeties in our pre-draft podcast. Oh, our friend Mr. Holloman? Yeah, so dropped to the seventh round after tying an NCAA record for single-season interceptions, and there's only one way you do that. You, you have, how should I put this tactfully in case I ever run into Mr. Holloman at some league function and have to explain myself? He has an aversion to contact. Well, I guess I could make the joke and say, well, he probably won't run into you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look, he, he had a good instinct in, in, in back-end coverage, no question. But you're right, he, he was not really interested in tackling. And, uh, you know, at some point in the NFL, even if you're a free I mean, look, I'm not comparing anyone to Earl Thomas, but he's a, he's a pure free safety. But when he comes up, Earl Thomas lays the wood on you now. I mean, in the NFL, it's like we talk about quarterbacks having to make throws from the pocket. Any safety has to hit in the NFL at some point, hit and tackle. And, you know, Holloman will either find that out soon or as a seventh-round pick he'll get cut. Well, I remember people downgrading Earl Thomas because he tackled like a cornerback. Uh, Gerard Holloman would have to go up a few levels to tackle like a cornerback. <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, look, he was a seventh-round pick. Those guys have to show a lot in camp to make a team. You know that. Well, and he's going to – I mean, if you're, seventh, you're a seventh-rounder, you're going to spend an ass load of time on special teams. And if you don't hit there, you're just gone. One other guy I want to mention real quick before we end is Senquez Golson, their second-round pick. I liked him potentially as a slot guy. Do you see him maybe taking a starter spot? Does he, does he have the talent to, to run outside in the NFL? Well, the only issue now is you get into size, and people are going to look at that differently because I think he was like 5'8 and 3 quarters. Yeah. Now, does that mean you can't play outside in the NFL? Look, there are guys who are short who play corner in the NFL pretty well, like Brent Grimes. Uh, you know, I think Jason Brett, before he got hurt, looked like he could play outside and be effective in San Diego. He's 5'9". So I don't want to dismiss Golson. I, you know, uh, he's certainly really athletic and quick twitch and explosive and all the things you look for. Certainly if a team plays more zone than pure man, which I think Pittsburgh will play, that also enhances his ability to play on the outside because of the scheme. So I don't want to dismiss that off the cuff. 
I don't think he's the, that size is what you ideally look for, but I think he's a, he's a good good prospect. Yep. Uh, great stuff, Greg. We're going to end with uh, one sort of bonus surprise question. As uh, as we're ending this podcast, T.Y. Hilton has agreed to a five-year, $65 million. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts on that? Just uh, I think they got a lot of good weapons in Indianapolis, yeah, by do. the way. Yeah, they do. But, I mean, you know, they've got Hilton, they've got Moncrief, they've got Andre Johnson, and, you know, late in his career. They've got Philip Dorsett. They can always go two tight ends with Dwayne Allen and Fleener. I mean, this is a team with an awful lot of weapons. Um, you know, I, I, look, I, I didn't know the numbers. Obviously, the salary numbers are really high, which shape good for T.Y. Hilton, but obviously it was important to them. And they have a quarterback who seems to like to throw the ball and does it fairly well. Yeah, I think he's, he's pretty good at it. He's an up-and-comer, that Andrew Luck. Yeah, I think he's got a chance to be pretty good somewhere <laughs> down the line. Five or ten years down the road, he may be okay. Well, Greg, yeah, yeah. always more than okay is your time with us talking football. We appreciate it as always, and we will talk to you again next week. Thanks, Doug. Really appreciate it.